Hey, what's good, people? I'm back. Guess who's back? Back again, Jason DeBiss. This is episode 27 of the Option Podcast. And with me today, I have our immortal beloved Duncan Avery. Stay tuned. The podcast starts right now. That's right, I'm back. That's right, you ask and you shall receive because I, Jason DeBiss, your hostess with the mostest, I got to give the people, give the people what they want. Duncan Avery, what's good, babe? How you doing, coach? <laughs> I'm so glad you're joining the show, man. We were just talking oh. about... um. We were just talking about one of our coaches, Dylan Holland, right? Was um took a job um shoot, bring me back. Where is it again? Yeah, he's over in Laos doing some uh computer engineering and decided to go over there to to pursue a career. So we're happy for him. We we miss him at evolution, but he's he's doing well over there. Yeah, he had he had one of these big, big old raggedy beards when I first met him. I called him sexy Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you, you saw like him and Todd Holland back play together. It was just like a, it was a beard life. And they, the first time I saw the two of them, they played the McKibbins. It was just, they looked like 300 <laughs> in the movie. <laughs> That's so, pretty good. So, Duncan, let's um, let's reel into the easy part. Um, Duncan, for everybody listening, Duncan Avery is the program director for um, Evolution Volleyball Club. It's out of Redondo Beach, California. Uh, little upstart, soon soon to be superstar club. Um, tell us a little something about that. Yeah, you know this is the seventh year with Evolution, and uh, you know I was born and raised in Redondo Beach, and and one thing that I've always wanted to do is promote the sport of volleyball, and I feel that um, you know club volleyball is getting so expensive nowadays. I wanted to find and create a club where the most amount of people can play to grow the sport organically. Um, you know, from a very grassroots perspective, but keeping it as inexpensive as possible. You know, I really want to just grow the sport, have people, kids in the South Bay, you know, play the sport. And again, that was seven years ago. And, you know, here we are now, we have seven teams. Um, every year we get more competitive. We have such great coaches and staff in the program. And it's just amazing keeping those roots of, you know, giving a chance to, you know, grow the sport, keeping things inexpensive. We're still about 50% cheaper than every other club out there. And it's, you know, it's just amazing. And the coaches I've met, you know, like you and, you know, everyone we brought along, it's, uh, it's just so, you know, I'm just so proud Sa of savages. where we are right now. Savages. The, co the, the, yeah. co the coaching staff right now is, oh my God, the coaching staff is, all right, for everybody listening, Tom Chaffins, anyone who listens to Redondo Air, you know him, um, um, one of the best high school coaches um, ever. Um, Kevin Norman. Uh, former volleyball great turns turn, turning out to be his, um, um, you know has a plethora of coaching experience that he brings and it turns out he's the head coach of Redondo Union High School now right yeah he's um, yeah he's currently the head coach of Redondo mm -hmm. and of course you have yours truly Jason DeBellis 21 years <laughs> 21 years of international and domestic experience and it turns out both of us won coach of the year in 2014 De you won Delhi Breeze right coach of the year I, I I did, correct. Yeah, 2014, Madison Square, uh, Madison Square Garden Varsity gave me coach of the year, so we were doing really good things at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> that, was, that was a good year for us, obviously. <laughs> yeah, so as far as the, the, the program's direction, um, 
what, what kind of kids do we usually uh, have trying out? Do we have a, we have a bunch of kids from South and Redondo, and where else? Yeah, I mean it's really the whole South thing. You know, we'll get um, athletes. You know, as far north as Culver City coming down from us. We have Manhattan Beach, Palos Verdes, Torrance. Um, you know, all the beach cities um, are really starting to take a note of our club. And what's nice is is that. Um, like I said earlier, we're getting more competitive every year. So we're getting athletes at our older teams that have maybe been at other clubs who, whether maybe don't see enough playing time, um, whether they're just ready for a change, um, just, you know, want to see what, what we're doing over here at Evolution. And they're, they're coming on board. And then what's nice is, is that with our middle school program, we're getting a lot of kids that maybe played baseball or basketball or really good athletes who've never played before and just want to start playing volleyball um and we grow those kids at 12 13 years old and develop them and uh they're coming through our program and staying with us so it's been a nice mix of you know some sometimes new volleyball players sometimes um they've been around for four five six years so it's really a nice mix of athletes we have right now in the program it really is and one the one of the things i like um about the program is that Every the guarantee the, the 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 contract the guarantee contract is that every every single player plays at least one set in every tournament. And yeah, you know, go ahead. No, no, no. I say yeah. Go ahead. Finish your thought. No, I, and I find that one of the unique things in, in comparison out of all the other competitive clubs, a lot of the competitive clubs, you have kids that join the team that un, under the premise that they already know they're not going to play. <laughs> you know, they just want uh, to practice with um, uh, um, their, their contemporaries of, of competitive nature, and they want to um, perhaps have good coaching, which which I can get into later, but I don't want to be such a Debbie Downer because, you know, I think there's a difference between good coaches and glorified babysitters. But, but um yeah, the thing I liked about you uh, that made that attracted me to evolution is not not just good human beings, but everybody gets to play a set in every tournament. Yeah, and I think that's a real not a selling point on our club, but it's just a, a philosophy we have. Um, you know, it with the staff we have, and at the staff of the local clubs, there's phenomenal coaches. You know, you go to some of the great clubs around us. There's a lot of really good coaches um, in the South Bay that we're so fortunate, and kids have a chance to to play for a lot of different options. Um, but we do guarantee one set every term because, you know, I'm a big believer of you get the most development um, on the court. You know, you need to see the live bullets. You need to see gameplay. You need to be in tournament situations. You need to be in games when it's, you know, 24, 23, a uh, chance to win a set, or maybe you're down by one and trying to come back and feel that pressure that you just can't, you know, recreate in practice. And you can do it. You can try, but there's, a difference when you put on the jersey when you're competing against someone else in a jersey where there's fans and referees and it's just when you can get that live game experience um it's you know i think it's you get the most development and that's something why our athletes develop at, at a pretty high rate is because everyone's guaranteed court time and as a director you know i mean when other clubs are charging six seven thousand dollars and athletes on the on the on the bench for maybe all day, you know, they're not even seeing playing time or maybe a serving sub here and then. That's just it's such a disservice to the athlete of, hey, I'm sitting on the bench all day and I'm wearing my uniform, but I don't get to play. So I really feel that that's a, a nice you know, way to develop kids in our program. I also think that, the, um, the again, the thing that I like about it is 
okay, everybody plays a set. And I'm, and when someone hears that from the outside looking in, it's like, okay, you're in a club where everyone gets to play a set. <laughs> what kind of players are they recruiting? We have pretty good players. <laughs> when, you yeah. have a, when you have a bunch of competitive kids um, that are like, all right, I want to play a set, but I want to play more. Now a true meritocracy takes over in practice. It, uh, uh, right? I mean, if they want more than a set, show me you know you want to jump serve show me show me in practice you could jump so you can hit it effectively oh coach i want to play um oppo instead of middle you know show me that you can you you you, you can close the block outside and show me that you're a good d zone hitter show me you know you you might have all off good off hands in an old school old school system you know it's not a libero but it's one of those things where now now practices are more galvanized because kids not only know that that that, that they have to go to the tournament dude i have to i have to play <laughs> but yeah but i might want to play more than one set <laughs> yeah and you know what and i think all all of my coaches especially you you're good about you know getting more than that minimum set because again that's our minimum level and again yeah. um we and again it's it is based on competition and practice like you said it's based on hey when it's a playoff match you know we're trying to to compete and trying to do really well for the club but we're also trying to develop the athletes and again the better perform the you know the better you perform in practice the the more playing time you you are going to receive so there still is a competition um factor in every practice to to you know earn that playing time i've also well, I, the teams that i've coached i'm um i'm on what year five right now i joined you in 2016 yeah you, yeah that's right Jeez. um <laughs> wow time. time flies huh <laughs> dude i had a kid <laughs> um <laughs> Um, so for me, I've been lucky enough to have teams that that are in the classic sense of the word a true team, you know, uh, so it's one of those things where playing a bunch of people wasn't, you know, it wasn't a star. I didn't have star driven teams where like there were two or three players or four, you know, or like a starting six that had to be on the court for us to win. So yeah, exactly. I've I've averaged, and for those of you guys listening to me and all the kids who are interested in playing club at Evolution, I coach 16s, and this year I'm, I'm coaching 17s. Um, I average 10.5, 10.45 players a, a, a match. So in a, yeah. in, in a match sixes where, you, where there's seven people in a libero, maybe you have someone come in a block or maybe a servant specialist, I average 10.5 people every two sets. 10.5 yeah, 10, 10. so so and it's weird because you know and and, and we're, we're speaking on and off the record here but you know that there are going to be some parents that are still going to leave <laughs> you yeah <know? laughs> so oh yeah yeah you know it's funny is that uh you know when i played club volleyball back in the day and this is you know 20 years ago um it was you know i tried out for one club my my from my freshman year to high school i only went to one tryout i played for one club i was loyal to them and there still are a few kids like that but the majority of kids now they love the tryout process they love to go to every club see what's the best fit for them and, and again that's just the culture we live in is where it's you know you're always shopping around trying to see what the best fit for you is but um things definitely have changed from a uh, a, a standpoint of, hey, I'm with one club and that's who I play for. Um, and we're trying to really, you know, reward those kids who want to come back and play for Evolution. We really try to um, create something with our younger teams, like a really special thing. You know, our four teams won uh, that we won the the Holiday Classic in the in the club division this time we've ever had a a, a, a win. 
our 15 took third in the holiday classic. So we've had some success with our younger teams. Yeah. And, hopefully and one of the teams were undefeated, right? One of the teams yeah, won every, every but, single set. Yeah, the four teams did. So, you know, and again, we're trying to hopefully get those kids staying in the program and wanting to be with us. But we do understand there's going to be turnover every year and we're going to get new kids and we're going to lose kids. And that's just part of the, the business we're in now. Yeah. Speaking of the business we're in now, what's, what's, um, okay. As the program director, what news did you get from USA volleyball as far as, um, um, returning for, again, for the people listening, the boys go on varsity break, the, the boys uh, volleyball season, uh, and, and almost every region except for like Long Island, New York is in the spring. So the, 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 the kids are playing in their, their high school varsity season in the spring. And then after the varsity season's over, they they return in May and then June and nationals are the first week of July. So we're supposed to return in May. What's going on? Yeah, you know, I mean, as of today, um, just USA Volleyball has said all operations are suspended until May 1st. Um, again, we haven't had an update in about two weeks about what uh, the next steps are and what they're planning. Um, again, I think it would be really hard to go back to the club season this year um just because of you know our, our junior olympics or junior nationals are in the the middle of june we have a lot of big tournaments coming up and it's just a little in my opinion i think it's going to be too close to you know to this pandemic outbreak to to be able to have gatherings of thousands of people now again um usa volleyball still has events currently planned for late may early june um, but I'm probably going to bet it's only a matter of time before they cancel those events. Yeah. How are you holding up at home? Yeah, we're good. I mean, uh, I don't know how much you want me to go into my kid's story, but, uh, it definitely makes things interesting. If you want me to give a little background on Please. that, I don't know if you want me to. Yeah. Yeah. So well, hold on be before, before you do it, I want to show the people on the camera, the shirt, the okay. shirt, the back of the shirt says, I'm putting it on the camera. There it is. Fight like Kalia, fight like no, no. There it yeah. is. All right, Ken, why does it say that? Fight like Kalia, yeah. fight like no, no. The, the, the floor is yours. Yeah, this is gonna, quite a, quite a story I'm about to share with you, Jason. Um, so it was Memorial Day weekend of uh, 2018, and I, I took my daughter, we were at the skateboard part actually, and uh, coming home, you know, she just kind of fell a little bit under the weather. Nothing too concerning. You know, kids get sick all the time. Uh, the next morning, she threw up. And for the next three or four days, she threw up every morning. Um, she complained of a headache, which she's never had before. So we uh, took her to the doctor. And the doctor said, oh, you know what? It's probably just a bug that's going around. Nothing to be too concerned. Uh, her headache hurt too bad or so bad that we took her to the emergency room. Um, I think it was that Thursday after Memorial Day. And they looked at her, they checked her out, and they said, again, probably just a bug that's going around. Um, here's, some, here's some medicine to help, you know, leave some of the pain. And, uh, you know, you guys should be all right. Um, and that weekend, it was actually pretty good. You know, she felt okay. She kind of stopped throwing up. Still had some headaches, but it wasn't too concerning. Um, the following week is uh, her headaches came back, the nausea came back. She was taking three-hour naps in the afternoon, which you know she never did as a six-year-old girl. And uh, ultimately, we went to a neurosurgeon, 
And the neurosurgeon thought she just had tight muscles, that she had tight muscles in her back and her neck that was causing stress, um, causing headaches. Um, so ultimately, um, the day after we saw the neurosurgeon, um, we went to the ER for the second time. Um, they did a, we asked for an MRI and they did an MRI and uh, they found a mass in the fourth ventricle of her brain. Oh, uh, so it was a Thursday and uh or friday actually and uh they rushed us over from um you know torrance memorial over to long beach memorial and i remember it's about two in the morning and we're in the ambulance uh going over there and um i just remember like as we get into the hospital um where i thought they were going to take us to like you know pediatrics or wherever and i just remember us getting pulled into the oncology unit and i'm like why are we going to the oncology? And I'm just like, and like my heart kind of dropped. Um, and, uh, you know, we, after the radiologist and everyone took a look at it, um, you know, there was, you know, it ended up being medulloblastoma, um, a brain cancer that she had. And that was on a Friday. And on Monday morning, she had brain surgery to remove, um, a three and a half centimeter mass by her brainstem. So, um, it was a successful surgery. Um, the tumor was completely removed and, uh, as we're, you know, recovering, I mean, like just the process of recovery is just, you know, like they have tubes connected to them. They have to drain liquid from their brain because of the swelling. Um, she had something called posterior fossa syndrome where you can't talk. Um, you just yell, you scream, you cry, like you just can't control your emotions. You're, um, emotionally just disconnected. It's a very, as a parent, like, you know, you think about your kid getting sick with the fever or the flu. And you're like, oh, what can I do? And now here's your child who just had brain surgery, removing a cancerous tumor and trying to be like, trying to deal with it. It was just, it was so emotionally draining. Well, that was the first week. It was uh, June 11th when she had her surgery. And that week we were recovering and my, I was, my wife was staying in the hospital with my daughter and I was actually at home with my son who was four years old at the time. And all of a sudden, like it was probably that a week later after her surgery, I was watching my son and his gait when he walked, he'd actually start leaning to the left. I'm like, and his name's Noah. I'm like, Noah, why are you leaning when you walk? He's like, I'm not daddy. I'm just, I'm walking. And all of a sudden, like, I'm like, this is really bizarre, you know? So I took him to the pediatrician and I asked her and I'm like, Hey, and this is, I think this was on June 18th. And I asked her, I'm like, Hey, could you take a look at my son and, and just see what you think about what's going on with his gait? And she looked at him. She's like, you know what? I'm sure it's nothing, but I do want to schedule an appointment with a neurologist. And I'm like, God, there's no way, like we have to go back to the neurologist. I'm, my wife's in the hospital with my daughter recovering from surgery. I'm here with my son worried about him. And uh, we ended up going to the hospital that evening to visit my daughter. And um, the oncologist was actually making their rounds for the evening. And I'm like, hey, now that you're done like looking at my daughter and evaluating her, can you do a quick look at my son? So he did some tests with lights in his eyes and then they, they took him in the hallway and they made him do a little walk and they saw that his gait again was lean. And he's like, again, I'm sure it's nothing, but I'm going to take you down to the um, MRI. We'll do a quick fast track MRI. Just have him take a look at it and see what's going on. And I remember going with my wife and I um, down to the MRI where my mother-in-law was with my daughter. And one of the nurses was like, oh, where are you going? 
And I'm like, oh, we're going to have to do a quick MRI for my son. They're just a little concerned about uh, his gait and what's happening. And they're like, oh, don't worry about it. Like, nothing's going to be wrong. It's probably him just emotionally dealing with it. Because, you know, like, he would sometimes point to his forehead to, like, the exact same point where his sister, uh, you know, like, had her pain. And I'm like, he's just mimicking his sister's illnesses and everything and what, what she felt. So I remember we went down to the MRI. And we got his MRI. And about a half hour later, the the head ER uh, doctor came in and said, I'm sorry, but your son has a, a mass in his fourth ventricle of his brain. And my wife and I, I mean, we just broke down hysterically crying. I mean, there's, you know, we're just like, how, like, how is this possible? Like, how is this physically possible that two kids in a matter of a week and a half are diagnosed with brain cancer? Like, how, how has this happened? And she's like, it's never happened before. Like this, this is, it hasn't. So, you know, that was on Thursday the 18th and on the 20th or maybe the 21st and 24th. Um, and, uh, you know, that Monday, that I think it was Monday the 24th, he had, he had brain surgery and same thing for, for medulloblastoma. And uh, again, medulloblastoma, it's a, it's a pretty common brain cancer for kids. Um, and when I say common, there's only 300 kids every year in the U.S. that are diagnosed with medulloblastoma. And we just happen to have two of the of the 300 in 2018 and again there's never ever been a brother sister diagnosed with medulloblastoma at the same time um so um because of their age and he had a successful surgery his his tumor was actually five centimeters compared to Calais, which was three and a half and uh um again his tumor was fully removed and the number one way to help cure and treat brain cancer is through radiation now, when you, if you aren't familiar with radiation, um, when you go through radiation, um, there's so many side effects. You know, it drops your IQ. Partic- particularly with children. I mean, you when, well, you, when mean, you think of radiation, nobody nobody thinks of radiation for kids. Um, Duncan. Yeah, Sorry, continue. Yeah, yeah, no. So, and what happens is, is like they say, when we give you radiation, there's chances where you can't uh, gain any more IQ points. Um, you could have early puberty. You can have problems with your endocrine system. You'll have just your, your, and with Kalea, um, we did photon radiation, you know, when they have to do the brain and spine and when they do the spine, also the lungs and the heart and the liver and all the other organs, like everything is affected. So for my daughter, cause she was older and six years old is the youngest they'll give radiation unless it's absolutely necessary. Um, she had 30 rounds of radiation. And then she did um, nine rounds of chemotherapy. And since August of 2019, it was her last round of chemotherapy. And uh, she's been in remission since August, which was, you know, it's amazing. Um, for my son, because he was too young for radiation and they wanted to save his brain and try to save. How old is your son? Uh, he, he was four when he was diagnosed. And your daughter? Uh, she was six when she was diagnosed. Okay. So, okay. So your uh, son? So- yeah, so he was forced, and again, so he was, you know, he was about a year and a half away from being old enough to do radiation. So he, they put him in this Head Start Four program. In the Head Start Four program, it's basically it's three rounds of very high intense uh, chemotherapy, followed by even a higher dose of chemotherapy. But those last three rounds, they take his stem cell and they'll spin it and they'll actually inject his stem cell back into his body after every treatment to help him recover faster. Um, so with my son, because his chemotherapy was so intense, you know, we averaged those first three rounds, probably 
14 days in the hospital um, for every 28-day cycle. We would spend the night there. And then when we were on those last three cycles, it was probably 21 days, 20, 21 days of the 28 days we were in a, in a hospital room. Um, you know, getting his high-dose chemotherapy, his white counts, his AMC, everything would get to zero. So any infection, his body couldn't fight it off. Um, you know, at one night he did go into, you know, like 104 degree fever with, you know, his body was going into septic shock because he had a central line infection. You know, both yeah. kids. Well, at that age, anything over 103, right? Is Yeah. So, I mean, just, but again, after he did these, these six rounds of high intense chemotherapy and actually in January of 2019, he was in remission. So he finished all his chemotherapy. He was done. Um, and, and what people don't realize once therapy is done, like it's not over because of all the side effects of the chemotherapy, all the side effects of the radiation from my daughter. Um, and every three months you have to do a checkup. You have to, you get an MRI to make sure everything's clear. And my son, um, from January to October had all clear scans. Everything was going right. Uh, great. Then we did a three month scan in October and, uh, they found a small mass on the left side of his, of his brain. So, um, unfortunately it, it, um, his cancer came back. So we, uh, we had a successful surgery again. They removed the mass and this time we did 30 rounds of radiation, um, down in San Diego at, uh, the Pro California proton center. Um, we didn't know this at the time because both kids were diagnosed. We wanted them together, but proton radiation, it's very targeted and it can save other parts of your body. So, um, regardless of where he did his radiation at, uh, whether it was proton or photon radiation, his whole brain was going to get radiated. But when they uh, radiate the spine, it makes sure your lungs and heart and your other organs don't get the radiation to the proton. So we did the proton radiation with him, um, and that was 30 days of completion, and we finished in early January. And uh, right now, um, he's currently has a 12-month um, chemo, uh, chemotherapy cycle. It's like a 28 day cycle for every cycle. Um, he gets chemo on days one and 14 at the hospital and days one through five, we give him a chemo at home. Um, where, I mean, the process of getting chemotherapy at home, it's, it's a pill that we have to crack open, but we're in gloves, we're in a suit, like, um, we have to use a disposable spoon that we mix it with pudding. Everything has to be, um, bundled together into a sharps container and then shipped out. And I mean, like if we're this, I mean, like we have to be so protective of just cracking open this chemo. And I'm like, our son is taking spoonfuls of this stuff. Like, what are we giving to our, to our boy, you know? But, um, luckily his cancer, I mean, he's still, he doesn't have any cancer in his body. His, his last scan was clear, but, uh, we are again, um, this is month three out of 12 of his, uh, of his chemotherapy. So, you know, us being like going back to your original question about being in isolation, you know, I mean, especially having, you know, two kids who have brain cancer, who had brain cancer, um, one of them going through chemotherapy, you know, we're definitely at that at-risk, at you know, population with our kids. And, you know, they're, you know, with my son, he was used to being in a hospital room for 21 days in a row. So for us to, to be at home and be together, um, you know, at least we are together because there's a lot of families we met in the hospital who, couldn't say that, you know, that, you know, there's so many times where families lose their kids to cancer and you're not really familiar with it or until you're part of that world. No doubt. And, uh, and we're just, we're just blessed to, to be able to have our kids at home and to be able to be together and to, 
to, you know, do things as a family, which, you know, which we're so thankful for. I really um, like that, that in, in light of so many of the bad things that have happened, you're, you've always been like a glass half full person and always see the good side of stuff. And, and at the end of the day, uh, as far as the common denominator is concerned, I guess you're right. You know, like everything else seems so trivial and seems so mundane, you know, and I'm, I'm not talking about the coronavirus. I'm just talking about stuff that everybody, on you know, day to day um, just worries so much about when 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 we all know that people, you know, there are people that are going through some real stuff, man, you know, right now. Yeah. I, I, yeah. And it, it, it puts things in perspective too, you know, for sure. Like being the owner of the club, like being a teacher, like I just, I have a different perspective of just, you know, understanding that, you know, kids are the center of almost every parent's life, you know? And again, you want the best for your kid, you know, but I can also understand that there is a bigger picture of, you know, when I get, and, and whether it's because of the situation my kids went through, whether it's because of, how great a coaching staff we have and how good of a job you guys do. Um, I get very little emails complaining about things, you know, which they're probably all from me, (laughs) which which might, which which might be a combination of everything, you know, but I definitely think, I think people realize that, you know, I have a perspective of, of, you know, like we're thankful to, to be on this earth and to be blessed to, to have more days with our kids. And because, you know, again, like, we don't know, like, we don't, like, we don't know what's going to happen for the future of our kids, you know, we're praying and we're, you know, like, we're hoping that this works, you know, for my son and that he has a long, healthy life and that my daughter stays in remission, you know, but the reality is, is like, once you do radiation, that's kind of the, the, not the last resort, but it's one of the the last things you do to help, help your kids, you know, where death is imminent, right? Yeah, so that both my kids have already used that car. It's like, if something else happens, like, man, like, we have to get real creative, you know? So, um, yeah, I, I just think it's, you know, just, I think you have to be positive because, and I'm, I've always been a, a positive, easygoing guy, but, you know, kids know your personality. If we were, you know, down in the dumps and moping around, like, you know, kids pick up on that stuff, you know, regardless of your situation. So, I think it's important to just be positive and always look on the bright side of things. Definitely. When your kids first got this, um, was your initial thought that it was genetic or were you thinking power lines or something crazy like that? I mean, because I I mean, I I know where you live. You don't live near any of them. But like Hermosa Beach, I drive by a bunch of people where there's power lines. and I'm like, Jesus Christ. Yeah, you know, it's... uh, it's funny. So like actually both kids and my wife and I, we went through genetic testing. They did all the genetic. There's basically 27 gene mutations that have, are common in edgeoblastoma they found in all those 27 mutations were negative. There's, we had none of those. So then I guess there's one of the geneticists saying there's, you know, there's 500 or so very common mutations for cancer just in general, you know, and all those gene mutations were negative too. Like there's, they were all normal. So now they're looking at our whole genome and exome and looking at every single gene in my kid's body to find out, you know, how did both these kids get medulloblastoma? And again, if we were brought on this earth to, to solve the answer of, of 
how to solve mesoblastoma and why it created like that's maybe our purpose you know but right right now genetically the answer is no like there is no genetic genetic mutation why this happened well then you have to go through like the environmental side of things right and that that was my that was my initial uh, um my first take the reason why i'm asking all of this is because i'm like all right what do they what do they live near (laughs) yeah no and again like there is um you know we had someone come out and take a look at the house and and what happens is they say there's there has to be a cluster like if there's a cluster of kids like why would if if it was something environmentally it would be more than just my two kids there would be maybe there'd be 10 15 20 kids with mesoblastoma in the radius of the south bay you know or right but this isn't a hot spot no this this is this is this is equivalent to a lotto ticket yeah, you know, and again, like, in, I mean, like, the, you know, like, there's all sorts of conspiracy theorists out there, and a couple of families have reached out to us, and, you know, like, you know, we live probably a mile and a half away from, like, the Torrance Refinery on 190th, and again, like, people are saying that that causes illness, because, you know, there are cancer cases of kids in the South Bay, you know, that, that does happen, you know, but it's just, I don't know if there's a, a big enough cluster to say, hey, this is the reason why, because why are some kids getting it and some not, you know? And I think from my childhood development class it, in school, it was everything's genes and environment, probably probably a combination of the two, right? Mm. Yeah. So. Let me let me ask you something, uh, and, and maybe I'm steering in a completely different direction. How how um you were still coaching when you when you had kids. And eventually, you know, you know, you step back because you wanted to spend more time with them. Has your style of coaching changed when you had kids, or when you were, or, or, or you just been around kids long enough where, where, where you just let, let the evolution, if you will, take its process? Yeah, it's funny. My kids, I think, were actually two and four years old when I quit coaching, and at the time, um, I I was a full time teacher. Um, I was the varsity volleyball coach at Redondo. I was the, I'm, I'm, I'm still am the varsity surf coach at the high school and I owned evolution. So for me, it was, you know, I was trying to run a club. I was trying to run a varsity program. I was trying to run the surf program, be a teacher and be a dad. And I'm like, man, there's only so many hours in the day. And for me, like my family's most important, you know, and as much as I love the Redondo varsity volleyball program, and that was my first joy and love and passion like you know it took up probably the most amount of time away from my kids and i realized that you know what i still want to be connected through volleyball which i can be through evolution but that day-to-day time i just want to spend more time with my kids and yeah you know going back to your question um i think once you were a parent you know at least for me personally you know i think i'm more patient and more forgiving to kids and just, I think before you have kids, sometimes you're like, you just don't quite understand that kids have good and bad days, that they're going to have their ebbs and flows of different personality quirks. And once you have kids, you, I think you just naturally become a little bit more patient as a, as a coach. Agreed. Yeah. I think one of the things that made, made me a better coach is, um, I'm a, I don't know if you know, as you know, I'm a, I was a returning adult student. I, I did a little stint in the military. Yeah. Um, played play volleyball overseas, went to Hunter College for like a cup of coffee. Um, and then um, wound up at Marymount, Manhattan. And 
a lot of things that have to do with theater performance, I, I associated because I was already a player before that. But I used a lot of things in theater that helped me. Like I may like I don't have to honestly feel a certain way to talk to a kid. Um, right now, I have a skill set where they have to where they believe I feel this way. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> you know, because my biggest strength, um, coaching, is the same thing as my biggest weakness, Duncan. I, I personalize my work. Yeah, my biggest strength is I personalize my work. So you know, I'm at home. I like it doesn't stop when I leave the gym. I'm I live in a I have an office set up just for volleyball. I'm here right now. Uh, um, no. I live in the video room like a hermit. Um, my weakness. You are, you are you are phenomenal about. If for your listeners, you know, after every match, he videos every single match he coaches. He posts it to YouTube. He gives feedback. The time that Jason spends outside of evolution practice and tournaments is unbelievable. So I will testify to the amount of time you put into the video room because that's it's an amazing thing that you do for your kids. Yeah. And for me, my challenge, because when you're coaching club volleyball, you have not just the kids um you have to chat you you're measuring a kid whether he's thick skin whether you know if you give him tough love can he take it you know what i'm saying or and that some kids you know the kid gloves or this and that so if you've been coaching a decade or two like we have you're able to diagnose um right on the spot but the biggest challenge for me for club was just parents you know like la last last year you and i had a discussion where i put a kid just a kid just in the serve and he missed the serve and i screamed i'll freaking kill you right now, yeah. now, first of all, I'm from New York. So when you say freaking strong enough, it sounds like you're saying the other thing. It sounds like you're saying, uh, um, you know, yeah, yeah. which I, I actually look back on the tape just to make sure I didn't curse at him. Um, and if that kind of language rubs the parent the wrong way, you know, or or if you just misdiagnose the kid, right? You you you, you peg the kid wrong. You think you could take it, and he can't. Um, then. Then there's a problem. There's a problem with someone having a problem with your style of coaching. You know, the first thing I want to knock out of the box because we're talking about a particular situation, and I'm not I'm not going to call out anybody, but just get something out of the way. Like no parent, when a parent hears a coach say "I'll freaking kill you," the parent is not upset at the coach because he thinks the coach threatened the kid's life. All right. That's just ridiculous. No one in their heart of hearts thinks that that kid is on your on your marked for death list. Right. And two no. days later, he winds up dead. And be, and here you have the death threat. And this coach is going to jail. Nobody's thinking on that level. That's just ridiculous. They 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 have a problem with the style of coaching, not because I, I, I threatened someone's life. No one. No one thinks Duncan. Duncan, no one thinks I'm, a coach is actually going to kill someone when he says, oh, my God, I'm going to kill you. <laughs> you know what I mean? So yeah. it's one of those things. I, it's I, a challenge I, I, for me as a coach to, to just be um, get rid of some, some of this old school virtue that actually brought me to the dance. But I don't really need any more, maybe. And, and two, know that there are other people besides the kids on the court. Yeah, no, exactly. And again, like. Again, you and I talked about it, you know, and it probably wasn't the the, the right choice of words for you at that time, you know. No, in um, hindsight, but, no. Yeah, and and again, but it's like you said, like every coach has their their personal style of coaching, you know. And again, I don't cuss. I'm not a cusser, you know. And mm. you know, I, I I tell you guys that mm. hey, like you know what, like parents don't want to hear a coach effing this and effing that, and they, yeah. you know, it just 
there's ways to give your message across by keeping your personality by trying to use you know like just positive language you know i think you've done a really good job of you know because again i think a lot of new yorkers that i've met you know like might or maybe i'll just say you because i i'm I'm not going to stereotypical that sterilize that or new york's fine um yeah but you know like you you know you you like to call things out as they are you know and um and i think that's a good a good quality you have you know and i think sometimes when californians aren't used to the maybe the brashness of some new yorkers it can maybe strike them the wrong way a little bit maybe right i mean but uh, I, I think I also think there has to be a meeting in the middle on this because these kids we're preparing them for 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 environments and situations where if things don't go their way they're gonna have to be able to handle that. Oh, for sure. You know, and that's something else I learned from theater. Like, like I'll give you an example. Let's say I get cast for a play. Let's just say Broadway. Let's just say a musical. Jesus Christ, musical. No way. Um, um. Let's say I get cast and I have to do. 50 shows, right? I have to do 50 shows in a four-month period or something like that, or six-month period. Let's say okay. I get the flu, or let's say my 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 woman and my kid just leave. You know, Kelly just takes Braxton and say, we're leaving, we're headed out, bye. You know, <laughs> we ain't coming back. Or in fact, you leave. Uh-uh. And I have a show that night. The audience who's paying me to perform, to paying to see me perform, do they care about my play? No, yeah, they, exactly. no, they don't. No, they yeah. don't. So I, I one, sometimes I do tough love and sometimes I, I do admit I go too far. And the reason why I brought this up is because there are coaches like me out there that have these challenges. And there are coaches like you, you know, who are, who are very good at recognizing these things. So this is why I'm, I'm putting this on full blast. You know, it's not the, yeah. it's not for the purposes of, of citing a, a particular person, but a group of people like me or like-minded like me. But the, the, the bottom line I was trying to say was – um. If a kid wants to be a winner, he, um, the situation doesn't care about his feelings. The situation doesn't care about his feelings. If he, a college scout is watching him, or if he's in a high school championship, or if he's in an NCAA Final Four, if you have the flu, if you're having a problem with your girlfriend, if the if if coach didn't you know sh- thought your shorts were too tight, uh, um, at the end of the day, you still have to get on the court and perform. So there are some people where you put pressure on them, Duncan, and they fold. And there's some people they use that pressure to focus. And that's been still to this day, 21 years in. Uh, and, and both of us, 21 years of winning. We win a lot, dude. We win a lot, Duncan. Um, mm. But still remains a challenge and still remains uh, as far as us trying to be better for versions of ourselves and find ways that we can improve. I give you that one. Yeah, no. And I think one thing that, you know, you hit on the nail that you were kind of discussing a little bit is just like, like the relationships that you build with kids, you know, and that, and that I think with every generation of athletes, you know, how you relate to kids can change. And as coaches, we have to adapt. And I think the best coaches, it's not necessarily what you know, because, you know, like I said, there's a lot of great coaches who have a lot of great knowledge, but it's how can you relate to your athlete, you know? Mm. And again, how can you personalize that relationship and how can you connect to that athlete for them to buy into what you're saying and for you to give that message in a, in a, in a way that they can address, you know, and you've had some athletes who, you know, they maybe want to be lit up and they want to have that tough love. And there's other kids who you have to handle with kitty gloves. Yeah. And, I think and, there, and there's some harder- kids whose parents encourage, you know, are like, you need to be harder on Alex. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? You're yeah. too nice. And then, then, the, you know, then there's some, they're like, look, you know, he's, 
<laughs> he, yeah, he's no, crushed. <laughs> yeah. And again, I think it's just knowing that balancing act as a coach of, you know, like build that relationship first and then, then give your knowledge, you know? And again, it might just be, you know, how, however you re- re- relate to every kid, but, um, you know, the best coaches can find a way to give that information for, and give the, have the player believe in that. No, no doubt. No doubt. And again, that's, that's not a revolution. That's an evolution. <laughs> Par yeah. for the course. Hey, um, I want you, you played for Redondo High School, right? You were a setter. Yep, set at Redondo. I set at El Camino and played at Long Beach State. All so, state, yeah. all state, all state, all state. I like it, man. Um, can is there a specific match or a play that was a defining moment for high school? I'm, I, I bring your attention not high school, not 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 um, Long Beach State. Um, is there a specific match or or a couple of plays where you're like? I I can be really really good at this, or I'm gonna be. I think I think I'm gonna be one of the best, or or a top five. You know what? When you, when you're saying this, I've actually no one's ever asked me this question before, but it it was funny. It was my junior year. Um, it was uh, you know '99, um, and we had an unbelievably stacked team. Um, Aaron Watchfogel was one of our main outside hitters. He was like an AVP guy who played at Pacific. We had uh, Jesse Webster. We had Owen Hanson, who ended up playing at USC. Um, a lot of really top players. And we arguably lost, the from the 98 team, the best setter who's maybe ever played at Redondo. And so I was, you know, a sophomore on JV. Then my junior year was 99 when we had all these really talented athletes, and I was a brand-new setter coming in. In our first match of the year, um, we played Palisades High School. And they had an outside hitter going to UCLA. And I remember just our, I was back row and our, our right side block probably left about a ball and a half a line. And I was sitting on like the 13 foot line. And this guy absolutely unloaded the hardest ball I've ever seen hit. Like, I mean, just absolutely thundered the ball. And I was sitting there right back about 13 feet. I probably should have had more depth, but I just happened to, you know, it was such a quick set that I didn't have time to, to get all the way back. <laughs> you were in and no I, man's land. <laughs> I want to say that, like, I'm like, and basically this ball, like, my hands just happened to be out. Like, I was, you know, I was always mentally ready. You know, I, I took pride that, you know, that I was ready for every play. So my, my arms were out. I was low. I was in a good position. And the ball just hit my arms in the absolute perfect sweet spot. Went, like, back up over the net. And, like, there's almost, like, a pin drop. Like, no one's supposed to dig that ball. <laughs> like, and that was the first match of my junior year. And it kind of uh, – we, we ended up beating them in three and um, ended up winning the Bay League that year. You know, we swept Maricosta. Oh, that was Mira. Okay, yeah. Yeah, we uh, got to the CIF finals. Um, we ended up losing in five that year to um, San Marcos, this team from a really talented team like Peter Jordan. Some guys played for that team. But uh, I just remember that first match of that 99, they're like, oh, man, like, you stepped in, you made maybe the dig of the year, but one of the best digs of my life. And uh, they're like, hey, you belong. Like, you can you can play with us. Like, you're our setter. We believe in you. And uh, that was a pretty a pretty good moment. Yeah, from that moment on, it was savage, huh? Yeah. That, it just, a little bit of confidence goes a long way, right? No doubt. Wow. Ooh, man, that's a cool story. I'm so glad I asked. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
Here, I'll, I'll tell you the, my other story real quick. Please. Like, so my sophomore year, um, Coach Chapins, one thing that if you're running a high school program, if you have any talented freshmen or sophomores, if you can bring them up to varsity tournaments and just have them be around the guys, maybe get them into serve, um, it goes a long way. I'm sure you did this when you were the coach. I did that at New Hunter. York. I did that at Hunter. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, again, for CIF, for playoffs, bringing up some of the younger guys just to be around the team, um, it makes a big difference for the development of those guys. And again, um, so my sophomore year, um, uh, the head coach, Tommy Shapins, brought me to Las Vegas for this tournament. And again, we were one of the top teams in 90. We're talking about Tom Shapins? Yes, we are. And so we're, we're in Las Vegas for, a, for this high school tournament. And uh, I think... It was the last game in pool. We already won the pool, so we were going to go to playoffs with our seed. And uh, coach like, "Hey, you're going to set this last set." And I'm like, "Oh, you're like who I'm me?" Excited, you know? <laughs> yeah. I'm like, so I'm a sophomore, like you know, a little scrawny, like you know. And this was a pretty big physical team, and uh, we have like a six four, six five middle blocker named Levi, and big, strong. And right before we're about to to go on the court he grabs me by the collar as tight as he could. And he said, you better set me every effing ball. <laughs> like, and this guy, and you're like, wow, he let me off the hook. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, I'm like, Oh my, like, like I honestly thought he was going to kill me. Like, I was almost shaking. I'm like, Oh my God, he's going to fight me. Like, so literally like any ball from the 10 foot liner in, I just fed him. Like I probably gave him 30 sets that, that over like that, that, that probably more like 15 sets that period as a because he was a middle. And, uh, I just every single ball went to him and he had he's like I want I want Duncan to set more offense is what I remember him telling Tommy Shapins. But uh that was that was pretty funny is the the senior captain kind of giving me a hard time as I before I step onto the court. And you're like, geez, oh you're like this <laughs> I didn't even get yeah. I didn't even set a ball. I bet the first one's gonna be a double. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, um there was a kid, um I was coaching City Tech in New York. Um, didn't have an NCAA team, didn't have a club team. I, I was 1999. I ended up building this team from scratch. All right. Okay. In fact, but, uh, 10 minutes before the first match, we, we registered kids, a kid for class for our sixth person. <laughs> so we had three guys that could really play international players. A guy from Port-au-Prince, a guy from, you know, Santo Domingo, you know, I have a big Dominican connection to New York. Uh, and we had a setter who was like five, eight, but he's from Brazil and he had hops. So the, the last person we signed was on the soccer team. We just stuck him oppo and just told him to put both hands up. And let me tell you something. These guys, <laughs> it was just so much fun watching good leadership, people that can play. Like we had this huge gap. There were, there were a bunch of people that could play Duncan, and there were three people that weren't very good and nobody, nobody else in between. And that's what make that's uh, what I guess what I'm getting at is that when you bring freshmen and sophomores to these varsity tournaments and you mix these freshmen and sophomores in where, where everybody behind them is crewed up, you know, yeah. it's, it's a squad. I think there's a, a ton of product productivity there. And her, oh. another example. Sorry. And bear with me on this one. Hunter High School. When I first got the job, I did tryouts and there were. um I ended up taking, what, 17 kids or something like that. But um, there were like 40 people tryouts. There were kids who made, who were on the team the year before. And there were seven promising freshmen. 
And okay. we didn't. And Hunter doesn't. They, I mean, Hunter has thirty-one sports, so they 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 couldn't afford. Uh, you know, they couldn't afford a JV boys team. They had a girls team. So so I knew that if I was going to pick a team, I knew I had to carry some kids because we needed the future. So I took seven seniors. I took seven freshmen, and I dropped everybody else. <laughs> and the school for the first half of the year. Nobody liked me. You can hear them in the locker room talking about me. Who's this guy? I think he is. You know, he he's messing with our culture. Cause uh, Hunter, uh, um, Hunter High School is predominantly Asians, and Asians in New York, volleyball is their number one sport. Okay. Volleyball and basketball is a close second. So, so um, you go to the nine man tournaments. It is a zombie apocalypse. It looks like Manhattan Sixes, except it's on asphalt. Um, and there's nine people on the court. There's like four front row blockers, uh, uh, five front row blockers and four back row defenders. So if you could draw that picture in your head, what, what Chinese nine man looks like. And I'll send you a link later. Um, so what happens as the season goes on, we start winning some games. And then when the playoffs come, we, we play Bronx Science, who I believe was the number four seed. And we beat them. And then won the next match. And then with this team with seniors, seven seniors and all freshmen makes it to the quarterfinals. Oh, first nice. first year. So now the the um and as you know, the, uh, volleyball is one of the only sports where the girls support the guys and the guys support the girls. Yeah. Like basketball, you see a little bit of that, but volleyball, there's no sport better than volleyball except for maybe track and field where the, this this incestuous relationship where the team managers, the people doing the scoreboard, someone calling lines, someone working this, it's all going to be from the from the opposite sex. Yeah, it's true. So now um, the quarterfinals come. Now all of a sudden I have four team managers. And I'm like, where did all these people come from? Now all of a sudden I got someone holding the camera and I got someone doing side to side. And then the freshman, uh, the sophomore year comes, all of the kids who got cut that were like, F this guy, they all tried out again. <laughs> oh, nice. You know, because I knew a lot of those seniors would be juniors. Uh, juniors would be seniors. And I knew yeah. that if they were thick-skinned enough to, to diagnose why they got cut, if if they came back to try out, um, I knew that they they that even if they weren't good enough, I knew that they could take it. So I ended up taking a lot of those kids the next year. Um, two years after that, we win that was two, we win the PSALs, um, which by the way, my finals was my was victory number one hundred. You couldn't script this better. There's uh, as as a high school coach, it was victory number one hundred. It was our finals. Oh, that's it. Thirty-eight and one record. The one game we lost was a, a, a team we met in the finals. We avenged the loss, the only team that beat us, Staten Island Tech, which um, in New York we called the machine. This, this, guy, <laughs> this guy made a machine that like spikes volleyballs at kids, like 100 miles an hour or whatever. So they, what they do is their blocking and their defense puts so much pressure on you, you start missing or you start tipping and you start doing all these things. They swallow you. They, this team drags you into deep water where they can they swim every day of the week and you drown. And, oh. and that was the team we had to beat. And, and they, they were the only team that beat us. Out of the Long Island teams, out of the private schools, out of the public schools. I played. I wanted to play 40 matches. So this way when, they, when we were doing national rankings, it was real. Like our, our record was real. It wasn't just puffed, you know, puffed, puffed up. So, and, and by the way, Duncan, this team, Staten Island Tech, they won the last four. I won in 2014. Oh. 
And they, they, as soon as I moved out of New York, they picked up right where they left off. They won the last four. It's, 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 it's a ridiculous dominant team, you know, yeah. a predictable offense. Uh, Duncan, you've seen teams like this too, especially at the high school level, predictable offense, but their defense, they're digging and like their, their team blocking and just, uh, whatever's in the drinking water in Staten Island that makes these kids like six, six at 13. Uh, um, um, there it is, <laughs> you know? Yeah. So, no, you know, it's funny about building a team that you were talking, kind of talking about, like, you know, I read this Navy SEAL book and they talked about, um, like, how, how, do, how, do, how do you pick a team? Like, how do you judge or how do you determine who's on your team? Yeah. And they kind of break it down into trust, into skill. And they say that the best athlete you can get is obviously high skill, high trust. But they would rather have low or medium skill, high trust individual compared to a high skill, low trust, you yeah. know? And if you, if you think about it, like, I mean, like go to the NFL, like who's the number one wide receiver, high skill, low trust, like Antonio Brown. Right. Right. I mean, if you think Oof. about it, you might be one of the most skilled guys, but you can't trust him. You know, you can't the team. <laughs> we, and, we did a laundry yeah. list on him on the last show, but go ahead. Yeah, no, but I mean like, again, like that's kind of the, you know, again, like, but you have someone like maybe like a Robert Woods, right? Who's maybe a medium skill, low skill, you know, some people might say a high skill, but like probably middle of the road, road wide receiver. Well, he is, yeah. But he's the most highly trusted guy on the team. And he's, you know, they're trading Brandon Cooks, they're trading everyone away, but they're keeping the guy they trust, you know? So again, when building programs and looking for guys, you know, one thing I try to do is, is can you find the, you know, the high trust kids and then develop the skill, worry about that attribute later. But, you know, there's there's nothing more cancerous to a team from that high skill, low trust guy, because that's not going to help you build a program. Yeah. Well, there's a reason why the Navy SEALs um, has a 60 percent dropout rate. Um, um, it's a historical fact. A lot of people just don't make it through that, that, that their their program. And I think it's very synonymous in a sense that it's easier to build someone up than it is to tear down and build. Um, yeah, I'm surprised it's only 60%, to be honest with you. Yeah. <laughs> I thought yeah, it was higher. A, no, it's probably higher now. I mean, 60% is what I got from 2002. Um, like, my whole family served in the military, and I, and I have some Navy people, but but I always knew that even people who are respected members in their spec ops community drop out. They just they just ring the bell. They try it. You know, you, through hell week, you get through hell week, and you want to find out who's there just to see what it's like or who's there because they want to be a SEAL. <laughs> you know? yeah. I mean, generally, they're all tough. They're, oh, they're, yeah. they're all tough. But I think I'll, I think some of them just want to see what it's like. And they're like, okay, I realized the first week this ain't for me. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But say, I think the same applies to volleyball because it's easier to build, to take someone who has promise to build um, that's already – that doesn't have to change their playing style to go with a, a different coach's philosophy because they're still young in the game, you know? Yeah. Exactly. And, yeah. Antonio Brown, I have a show called, um, the, um, volleyball, um, sports debate Tuesday. And we, Rob McLean and me, we, we do this. We air this every Tuesday live. And Antonio Brown was just someone we were like, if I told you, if I wrote a script, 
Like Antonio Brown, if I wrote like a script and you read the script off all the things Antonio Brown did, you would throw it away. You would say, "Jason, I'm not. I'm not producing this. I'm throwing this out because this isn't real. This doesn't. This this isn't real life. No one can relate to this. This is fiction. Yeah. You know, I want you to. Next, I want you to write another script and this time come up with something that's real and believable. Okay? <laughs> because yeah, you couldn't make that stuff up. And look, my favorite thing, we have a laundry list about him taping his baby mama drama, um, not uh, John Gruden snubbing John Gruden, snubbing Robert Kraft, um, not keeping his mouth shut for three days so he could get his twenty nine point one million dollars. All he had to do from Thursday to Monday was not say anything. Yeah, exactly. Um, but my favorite one was when um, he was Facebook living. He was taping Mike Tomlin doing a coaches to players meeting where Mike Tomlin is, is stressing the emphasis off about staying off of social media. Yeah. <laughs> so he is live streaming on social media, his coach talking about the importance of staying off of social media. You can't make this Esh up, dude. <laughs> and that's and hence why he's a low trust guy. <laughs> you know? and, he's the best receiver in football and he's not in the game. Yeah, it doesn't have a job right now. Low nope. trust. So. Nope. And I know he wanted to follow Tom Brady because um, Tom Brady won. He just Tom Brady. The reason why he liked Antonio Brown is because he finally had one receiver. The man's only had three elite, uh, two elite wideouts his whole career. Randy Moss, which by the way they had an undefeated season. That's what he does. That's that's what he does with one good receiver. Um, Ocho Cinco who's who's back past his prime but still good good enough to get to the Super Bowl. And that's it. You know, You're not calling Dwayne Edelman elite. Yeah. Well, he told. <laughs> Well, he told Antonio Brown, you can stay at my house. <laughs> yeah. So Antonio Brown was under the impression he's going to follow him at Tampa Bay. But there's a guy named Bruce Arians who's very much like you or me where um, he's he's looking for fits in the locker room. You know, someone who's a fit for the locker room. Because, yeah. And, and besides, when you have Mike Evans there and you have Godwin, uh, you, you think you're going to tell me that Antonio Brown's going to be comfortable with only eight targets a game. You're out of your mind. You know, so, yeah. so uh, yeah, that's, that's, that's whatever. So, um, listen, uh, let's get to Long Beach State. Let's get to Long Beach State. You, you were in a 2013 season when you guys made the finals? Tell me. Uh, I, no, I, so I played in, in 2004 at Long Beach State. Right. Oh, that was it. 2004. Whoa. Yeah, 2004. Sorry. So, yeah. Wrong so, decade. 2004, I, I played, um, you know, what, uh, and it was, that year was funny is that uh, I it was you know I, I walked onto the team after Long Beach uh, after El Camino you know I mean I had a lot of success at El Camino I was you know ended up as an all-time assist record leader at El Camino Junior College and mm. had a lot of success there nice. um, but I, I was never you know really recruited to to play anywhere after that um, you know I wanted to get a degree in kinesiology I knew I wanted to coach so I actually transferred in the spring and played on Long Beach State's club team and I met one of my best friends, you know, Matt Prosser, as best man at his wedding. And he's like, hey, you should go out for the actual team next year, you know. So I ended up going out for the team that fall in 2004, and I, I made it. And uh, that whole season, you know, was probably my favorite volleyball experience I've ever had. Um, Who was the coach? You know, the, it was Alan Knight. Alan Knight oh, was still the coach. Alan, okay. It was uh, on that team. I mean, it was the most competitive, athletic group of guys that I've ever been around. Tyler Hildebrand was setting. David Lee was in the middle. Um, Scott Tuzinski, you know, was on the opposite. Jeff Wooten, 
um, you know, Paul Munoz, um, Duncan Budinger. I mean, the, the team was absolutely loaded of, you know, a lot of who's, who's of, and, uh, just being able to compete and practice against those guys. And that whole season, I didn't get put in for one play. You know, I, I didn't like, you know, like I didn't, I didn't coach never put me in to serve or to play defense or to, to dress out on, you know, so I've, uh, you know, I've been where I've been the best player on the team, where I've, you know, had the state records and all CIF and all state and all those records. And I've also experienced not playing at all. And so I, I can relate to parents when, you know, about playing time, because I've been on the both sides of the spectrum. And, uh, you know, again, just being a part of the Long Beach State program and being on that team. And, you know, we were up 13-8 in the finals and, and five. Um, we were in Hawaii versus BYU. And uh, we ended up losing 19-17 in the fifth for a NCAA title. So that's uh, that was heartbreaking. BYU won, huh? Okay. But, Who'd you beat yeah, in the semis? But, Who'd they beat in the semis? Uh, in the semis, BYU. God, who did? Because we were the number one seed. We beat, I can't, I'm drawing a blank. I think it was Pepperdine in the semis. Was it Pepperdine? Or no, Lewis. So BYU beat Lewis. Um um, yeah, BYU beat Lewis, and I think, gosh, I think it was Pepperdine. I'm not exactly sure, though. Right. So, yeah, because well, uh, 2002 and 2003, the, the previous champions were just BYU, um, Lewis and Hawaii got disqualified, I think. But Yeah, uh, like yeah. My, one of my best friends from high school was Ryan Stunts, and uh, he was the libero for – he actually played at El Camino, then went to Lewis, and he got a, an NCAA title when they beat – um pepperdine in the pyramid at long beach the year before so that's why um yeah so he he was on that 2003 2014 so he, actually i was in hawaii with him that was john mayer um, uh yeah john for pepperdine yeah and for yeah lewis, sean and sean rooney yeah okay yeah yeah and for lewis there was a lot of just international guys and unfortunately they did get their their title stripped because of uh some ineligible players but you know my friend Ryan still has his ring. Like he's like, I, I have no one's taking my NCAA. Yeah, ring. come, like, yeah, oh, come get yeah, it. <laughs> I, yeah, I, I know, I, I know that we won that tournament. Like I, I got my ring still. There you go. No, cool. <laughs> Forget all that. No, I'm yeah. Come get my ring. See what happens. Yeah. <laughs> so touch my ring. <laughs> yeah. I, I, yeah. So that that is that is rather unique. You go from from all state to to someone who doesn't get any playing time and. Um, I think that's probably when you're looking from the outside in, you it, you, you probably tell yourself, I, I could probably coach this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know what's nice is that my that was my junior year. Then my senior year um, at Long Beach State, we're in uh, individual workouts, and I was making blocking moves um, with Coach Greg Vernovich, uh, Vern. He is what an unbelievable motivator and coach. And he ended up quitting volleyball to be a guy to help climb mountains and you know, all over the world. Like, but, uh, that's another story. But, um, anyway, so he's, he's on one, he's on a box on one side of the net. I'm making blocking moves. I go up, make a blocking move. Um, ball goes between my hands. He gets me right in the eye. My eye popped back. It tore my retina completely in half. And this was a probably had like 30 minute individual workouts. And this was probably 10 minutes into the workout. And if you've ever been like hit in the eye or like a ball hits your eye, like it's all blurry and you're like, oh man, I can't really see. So like I kind of was rubbing my eye and got back in line and like, like my next blocking move, I, like, I, I crisscrossed my hands to protect my eye. And coach like, no, keep them apart, you know? And like, I guess like that was the end of the blocking drill. But I had like 20 more minutes of a private and the whole time, like 
I couldn't see anything. Like my, I'm like, dude, like my eye is just something's wrong with my eye. So at the end of the individual, I told uh, coach, I'm like, hey, I need to see the trainer. Like, and he looked at my eye and like, you can't like, you can't like tell when you tear your retina. And but uh, the trainers are like, oh man, you gotta, you gotta get someone to look at this. So I actually ended up having surgery. That was a Friday. Um, from Friday to Monday morning, like, like I was completely blind. Like, I couldn't see out of my right eye, and my left eye was kind of fuzzy. Like it was kind of a scary experience. Um, and then Monday morning I had yeah. surgery to repair my torn retina, and uh, the medical doctors at Long Beach actually wouldn't clear me um, to uh, to compete anymore. So unfortunately, my senior year, where I like and where I probably was going to get some playing time because Tyler Hildebrand was hurt that year a lot and. Um, there was like a, a freshman setter who, you know, I felt I would have been able to, to compete and get some playing time. So, um, unfortunately my senior year did end early, but coach Knight just, you know, whether he saw something in me or he's like, Hey, like I want to, you know, whenever, whenever you're, we're done, like, you know, you can come coach for me. So in 2008, I was actually getting my master's and, uh, coach Knight's like, Hey, I want you to, to come on board and coach for us. And, you know, you can work on your masters uh, while you're at Long Beach. So yeah, in 2000 or sorry, that was 2007 and yeah, 2000, yeah, 2007 that happened. So yeah, so I coached the, I was the, the technical assistant and an assistant coach for the 2007 Long Beach state team. And also during that year, like we actually didn't make playoffs that year. Um, that was like Paul Lottman sophomore year, sophomore, junior year. And uh, he was kind yeah, of, he, he's watching right now. Yeah. <laughs> He's watching the but, show right now. Uh, uh, <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, we didn't make playoffs. So then I, um, coach David's like, Hey, I know the Long Beach state season's over. Do you want to come help coach Redondo? And uh, it was a spring break practice. So I went to the Redondo gym and like only three or four guys at Redondo showed up and coach David's like, you know what? Like I just, I think I'm ready to be done with the boys. Like he had his girls team off and running. So uh, he asked if I wanted to take over at spring break. So I was like, man, Long Beach is done for the season. Like, yeah, I'll take it over. So kind of without asking the AD or anyone, we kind of just shape into like, hey, you're going to be the coach of the team from now on from spring break for the rest of the year. And we ended up going like on a nice little winning streak. We beat Loyola and um, the ADs like finally someone in the paper like shape and said, hey, like we have a new coach at Redondo and the, the a our athletic director at the time was like, hey, like we want Duncan as the coach, but uh, you just can't announce it. You kind of have to go through the, the proper paperwork. So 2008, I realized uh, my dreams of being a college coach were over, but I got hired as a PE teacher and as a, as the head coach of Redondo in 2008 and did that for 10 years and got the surf coaching job about two years later. So that's a hell of a, listen, this, that's a hell of a place to pitch your tent, Duncan. Yeah. You know? and there's a, um, listen, I, um, before I say what I got to say, I say big up to Alan Knight because um, just like you and some other people, he was very good at um, helping me introduce people. Like he, you know how he was there. They have like high performance tryouts for like the U.S. team for like juniors okay, and yeah. all that stuff. Yeah, 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 yeah. He hired me as a as a uh, an evaluation coach for the setters and the oppos. Um, on, uh, be, you know, he, he knew someone, uh, Chi DiMaggio, you know, there was a friend of a friend and she, she was like, listen, my friend Jason, he moved to California. He's a real coach and you should use him. So Alan Ipes like, it's Super Bowl Sunday. Nobody else wants to be here. Let me give this kid a shot. Yeah. <laughs> so, so it was one of those things where he didn't know me, but he was really good. He's really good at giving people opportunities. 
He's oh, really, he's really, amazing. He's really, really good at giving people opportunities. I'm, and I'm eternally grateful of that because every time I see him, like he remembers, you know, because, uh, you know, I, I was just acting like a New Yorker. And like yeah. all, all of the parents are like, you know, forget about the players. Forget about hey, who's that guy. Yeah. <laughs> and no, and the mean, parents I mean, were like, what's your name? I have to know your name before I leave. So it's one of those things where I made a, a very, very good impression. Um, where I wasn't even supposed to make a good impression. I'm, I'm, you're a court evaluator. You're not even supposed to be seen or heard. So um, big up to him for that. Um, yeah, but, no, I'm, I'm eternally grateful for, for him letting me walk onto that team and for mm-hmm. me to for for me to be part of this coaching staff. I mean, the you know, I think as a player, like you take bits and pieces, you know, like a lot of my coaching is from Tom Shapens. A lot of my coaches coaching stuff is from, you know, Dickie Blunt and El Camino and the club coaches I had. But a large part of my philosophy and a lot of the stuff I do is you know, is from Alan Knipe and from Long Beach and yeah. um just, just you're definitely he's, he's you're definitely a middle first coach. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and a setter too. Yeah. Oh come on. That's that's pretty academic, right? <laughs> Yeah. Uh, uh, but I guess th- I wanted this to plug that first, but more importantly, um, I could say a lot, uh, a lot of the same thing about you as far as like given, given, just given someone an opportunity, maybe you see something. When I moved to California, I live dead smack between Miracosta High School and Redondo. My house is pretty much a, a, a center space between both. So I visited Mira and I visited you. I just wanted to see what the coaching situation was. And I was hoping I could just talk to some people. And you were extremely accommodating. You are extremely polite. And at the end of the day, when one coach sees another, we speak the same language. Right. Uh, it's uh, right. I could, I could have been from Australia, but if I speak volleyball, yeah. we're good. <laughs> so um, I was eternally grateful. You gave me that team, that evolution team, which, by the way, remains one of my favorite teams. Um, oh, yeah. Thunderbird Jackson. It was, you know, nationals. We made a we made a big hit. We took down one of Cincinnati since the attacks. Um, we took down the five seed. You yeah, know, and, that, was, and, um, that was great. Made a. It was it was a lot of fun. <laughs> it was a lot of fun, but I always joke with you, and I could share this with the people listening. If there was if if there's, we should make a holiday called Duncan Avery Appreciation Day. Just reserve <laughs> reserve a day, reserve a day. Listen, listen, reserve a day for everybody that remembers you, for um like kids that grew. Look, just like Tom Chaffins, right? People remember Tom Chaffins, Chaffins for the rest of their life because he was he was an educator and he was, but he was also a mentor and he was also like um I I don't know how, I don't like saying father figure because that's not. Uh, uh, the, uh, a complete logical uh, connection, um, but there are kids who remember you, and they're and they're grown ass men like me that remember you too. So, Duncan Appreciation Day, we got to figure that out. All right, well, thanks, Jason. Do, do you want that, that in the summer? Right, <laughs> is summer better, or does or is it California? It doesn't doesn't matter. It doesn't mean doesn't mean yeah. nothing. Yeah, <laughs> rainy weather we've had, but yeah. Yeah, well, for the AVP, my my birthday's um the the sunday for the avp finals in hermosa beach if that's still happening um oh, i'm picking up rob mclean as one of my players if, whether he plays with rob Dior or, or whoever he was training with ali son so he um and he was also training with p1440 so he he's really upped his game so um i'm supposed to be coaching um him and i'm doing analytics for rafa rodriguez at Ed ratledge's partner um hopefully hopefully again this year rafa was another guy that gave me my opportunity like I wouldn't be coaching AVP players if it wasn't for him. He's the one that kind of gave me my in. Um, but I also helped him and Kevin McCulloch prepare for Manhattan Beach a couple of years ago um, in Temecula. So 
So we we got a good relationship that way. But um, yeah. so wow, we we're in. <laughs> well, 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 hey, well, thank you for having me, Coach. I, I appreciate you uh, having me on your podcast, and I hope to uh, you know maybe we'll find a way to you know coach the rest of the season at Evolution. But if not, uh, you have a lifetime contract, so we'll be seeing you in the fall of next year. Hey, I am. No matter where I go, no matter what I do, I'm evolution. I'm evolution all the way. I was evolution before I came to California. I had a club, I had a club team called Evolution. So, and then yeah. I got guys listening to the podcast right now. They see I'm wearing the Evolution T-shirt. Um, I I show them the white one with the little the, the kids, and I'm yeah. wearing the blue one. So, and by the way, I really like the design. Um, yeah. The new ones. You're 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 cool like that. You're you're, you're swanky. Like that. All right, so uh, once again, Duncan, thank you very much for joining the show, and um, see you soon. Yeah, thank you, Coach. We'll talk to you later. All right, later. All right, people, that was Duncan Avery. My man, the man, the myth, the legend. Uh, from a, a, a regional perspective, he's very well-respected. He's certainly uh, very much loved. Um, and... The, the ordeal that he went through with this that is continuing to go through with his children just makes everybody just look at things in in perspective people who are mundane about i don't know what they had for dinner people who think that they were not good enough to start every single set on a in a match and are people who you know they're they're mad because they're making hundred thousand dollars instead of a hundred and twenty five thousand dollars you know you there are things in life that are just that are just that when when you hear his story they just make you take a step back and you're just like i thank god i thank god for what i got you you learn to appreciate and you always think you deserve more but always take the time and appreciate the things you do have all right keep that glass half full like this gentleman does ladies and gentlemen that was duncan avery that's that concludes our podcast Podcast is brought to you by Endless Summer Beach Volleyball and brought to you by Beach Volleyball National Events. Come play with us. It is also brought to you by NY Varsity Sports. Watching me, watching you. Thank you very much for all of you at home, for all of you on your iPad, for all of you on your desktop, for all of you listening on iTunes, Facebook Live, YouTube. I'm Jason DeBellis. I'm out of here. See ya.